In the summer of 2021, the actress Ellie Kemper was kind of everywhere. But it wasn't for a new episode of The Office or the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Ellie Kemper is at the center of a new controversy surrounding one of her hometown's oldest traditions. This was a controversy that originated more than 20 years earlier when she participated in a debutante ball in St. Louis, Missouri. Twitter users discovered Kemper's involvement with the VP ball and dubbed the actress a, quote, KKK prom queen for her participation. The Veiled Profit Organization, or the VP to those in the know, is a mysterious and exclusive group at the center of power in St. Louis. When Ellie Kemper was a teenager, she debuted in the Veiled Profit Ball, where the men of the organization present their daughters to high society. The young women literally bow to a veiled figure at the center of a large ballroom. It's a hallowed tradition for some, but others have made it their mission to take it down. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On December 22nd, 1972, the Veiled Prophet, St. Louis's most secretive and prestigious social organization, hosted its annual ball. But that year, a group of local activists crashed the party to protest the elitist event, using disguises, diversions, a little acrobatics, and a shocking stunt. They did not ever expect to be infiltrated. Ooh, nobody knew what to do at that point. Dress code is white tie, because after the break, you are commanded to appear before the veiled prophet and his court of love and beauty. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. In the fall of 1972, Lucy Ferris was enjoying her first semester at Pomona College in Southern California. At one party, she started telling friends about her hometown of St. Louis and the unusual traditions she experienced growing up there. I got fairly drunk and 
demonstrated the deep, deep bow that we had all been taught to perform and uh, asked if there was anybody at the party who wanted to come with me to this kind of costume show in St. Louis. In just a few weeks, 19-year-old Lucy would be headed home for winter break, where she'd take part in an annual tradition, that ball hosted by the Veiled Prophet, a men's-only, whites-only, members-only group. She'd debut and perform that deep bow in front of St. Louis High Society. There were names that had been in the town for generations and had accumulated wealth and prestige, the Danforths, the Pulitzers. My family was, was one of those families. Lucy's dad was a local judge, but her family pedigree went all the way back to her great-great-grandfather, who helped put on the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And being part of the upper crust meant that Lucy had heard about the Veiled Prophet Ball from the time she was a little girl. Every year growing up, she would watch the televised version with her brother while her parents attended in person. Now your Union Electric Company presents The Legend of the Prophet. We got to go into our parents' bedroom because they were there and they had a color TV. And we got to sit and watch the ball on TV, which was tremendously exciting to us. Lucy watched as young women in silk gowns and long white gloves twirled around the dance floor with their dates. The massive hall, the St. Louis equivalent of Madison Square Garden, was sumptuously decorated with elaborate white bunting, plush red carpet, and grand set pieces. And at the center of it all, You've got some very wealthy businessman who dresses up in these white robes uh, with a veil over his face and a pointy white hat that makes him the veiled prophet. Surrounded by courtiers in the colorful costumes of the East sat the bearded prophet. A veil of silver covered his features. The veiled prophet in his silver shroud is sort of the mascot of this whole event. His costume is intentionally mysterious and intimidating. The veil disguises his face, and his true identity is a tightly guarded secret. Does anyone know what kind of a man is behind the silver veil? No. Nobody knows. The veiled prophet had been part of St. Louis folklore since the 1800s. And Lucy knew the character as a local fixture. There's a children's book that many, many families had and read to their children at nighttime. This happened, you know, in the Christmas season. So they would read Christmas stories and they would read stories of the Veiled Prophet. And the whole thing got mixed up in your head as to which was the more important event, the birth of Jesus or the coming of the Veiled Prophet. Little Lucy watched the intoxicating spectacle on screen as one by one, each young woman walked down the red carpet that led to the veiled prophet's throne. They bowed deeply to him, like he was their king. Matter unveiled prophet night. Everyone owes allegiance to his mysterious majesty. <laughs> what the TV cameras didn't catch, though, was what was happening outside the venue. A group of demonstrators protesting the white elites in their fancy private event. And leading the charge was this guy, 
always had a picket line across the street. You know, we were not protesting to become part of it. We was protesting to eliminate it altogether. That's Percy Green, one of St. Louis's best-known civil rights activists. Percy led the activist group Action, which stands for Action Committee to Improve Opportunities for Negroes. And Percy's approach to activism was always to create the most spectacular, in-your-face scenes possible to get people's attention. That was more effective rather than trying to appeal to these uh, racist officials with that academic approach, let's say. Let me give you an example of a classic Percy Green demonstration. It was the summer of 1964. Percy was between shifts at his day job as a lab technician, and he headed over to the St. Louis Arch. It was still being built. Once completed, it would be over 600 feet tall. And up to that point, the construction company in charge had only hired white men, no black workers. So Percy, dressed in his signature aviator sunglasses, his tightly laced combat boots, and his neatly tucked shirt, climbed 125 feet up the shining silver arch in the hot July sun. Mind you, this was a climb workers were usually harnessed for. Percy, he just started climbing. Within minutes, news crews swarmed the scene to hear from Percy himself. We are demanding that the whole pattern of discrimination in the construction industry be changed in order to include Negroes in all skilled jobs. Percy's entire platform was aimed at helping advance job opportunities for Black men. And for Percy, that eventually meant taking on the Veiled Profit organization. Its wealthy members have held an enormous amount of influence over jobs in St. Louis. That had been the case since its founding. Remember that it came into being when the working class had the general strike back in 1877. The General Strike of 1877. That year, rail workers in West Virginia went on strike for better wages and better treatment. The U.S. was in the middle of massive industrial change, and the strike spread across the country. In a matter of days, it had reached St. Louis. Nearly all of the city's working class, not just rail workers, but steamboat operators, brewery workers, millers, even newsboys, refused to work. The whole city shut down. For a week, the working class had St. Louis under its thumb. But they didn't hold power for long. How did they break it? The white power structure with their guns and everything forced the people back to work. In response to the strike, the city's business owners gathered and dispatched a militia. 18 strikers were killed. And in 1878, St. Louis's ruling class celebrated its victory with a parade. The VP was a celebration of their management over the working class. The parade celebrating the defeat of the workers' strike became an annual event and eventually spun off the Veiled Prophet Ball, which became a St. Louis hallmark for the next hundred years. So while Percy was taking on the city's biggest employers, demanding they hire more Black workers, he started to notice a pattern. Some of the chief executive officers were members of the Veil Prophet. 
Some of the very CEOs Percy had been trying to sway were themselves members of the Veiled Prophet. And all that power, concentrated in one place on one night, made the debutante ball the perfect target. And so, in 1965, Percy began protesting the event with a picket line outside the venue, advocating for the city's Black workers and condemning the Veiled Prophet's racist membership rules. Action held signs that read, Let them eat cake, Veiled Prophet, and Entertainment for Rich, Paid for by Poor. But by 1972, Percy was ready to up the ante. He and Action were going to infiltrate the exclusive, invitation-only event with Spycraft. Percy knew there was no way he'd be allowed in, but perhaps he could send in some white members of Action to raise hell in his place and to do the thing Percy had been threatening for years. We're going to unveil the real prophet. Percy wanted to take away the power of the anonymous figure at the center of the ball. The man under the veil changed every year. Portraying the prophet was a rotating gig for the group's members. So for Percy, it didn't matter who the veiled prophet was specifically, but revealing his identity could demystify the secret society's intimidating figurehead and take away the power of the veil. Those people were so cocky and they were so full of themselves. For weeks, Percy and a small team of organizers strategized at Action HQ. They stood around a chalkboard with a map of the venue on it. Across the top was scrawled, Operation Unveil. One of the operatives who would try to sneak into the ball was Jane Sauer. She had volunteered for this mission. I just kind of wanted to see what this was all about. So my curiosity also kind of pulled me in. Jane grew up in St. Louis in a liberal Jewish household. She became involved in the local activism scene as a young woman, and at the time served as action secretary. To get inside the Veiled Prophet Ball, Jane couldn't just waltz in the front door. She would need a real deal invitation, which wouldn't be easy to come by. Luckily, Percy Green was good at getting things he wasn't supposed to have. To this day, I don't know who we got the tickets from. No one has ever admitted to me that they were the supplier of the tickets. While Percy has never revealed who he got the tickets from, we do know that he wrote to all of the debutantes that fall, asking for their extras. And the ones he finally scored were in the balcony section, where the household help of the debutante families always sat. And so... Jane would be joined by another action accomplice, Gina Scott. And together, they would go undercover as the help. We dressed how we thought if we were maids in these households and we had the opportunity to see this important event, how would you dress for that? Jane and Gina bought their gowns, secured their tickets. Now it was time to crash the party. After the break, what could possibly go wrong? How can we shake this guy? We've got to get rid of him. We can't have him tailing us. (laughs) 
Welcome back, my undercover debutantes. We left off in 1972, when St. Louis's annual Veiled Prophet Ball was about to begin. And Action, a civil rights group focused on employment for Black men, was waiting in the wings, ready to disrupt the evening. Lucy Ferris, who we met at the top of the show, was also preparing to attend. The wonder she had for the Veiled Prophet as a child had soured into contempt by the time she'd reached adolescence. My date, Michael Edson, and I thought it was absolutely mandatory to make a pan of marijuana brownies so that we could get through this. Whoa, weed brownies? If you told me about that part, I would have been your date, Lucy. Whether or not she liked it, Lucy's St. Louis lineage meant she was expected to participate, even if she was kind of over it. I was ready to treat the whole thing as one big joke. I thought this was the old aristocracy. It was passing away. It was stupid. And um, I would participate with a kind of snarky attitude. Hair done, white gloves on, marijuana brownies ingested. Lucy was ready to make her debut. That night, the hall was filled with thousands of people, almost exclusively white and dressed to the nines. The audience, in cocktail rings and enormous furs, took their seats for the evening. At 9 p.m. sharp, the Veiled Prophet made his entrance, sat on his throne, and then 19-year-old after 19-year-old began walking the red carpet towards him. The names were announced in great stentorian tones. If you can imagine this in a baritone, the Veiled Prophet announces to his court of love and beauty, Miss Lucy Air Ferris. Stoned out of her mind, this event suddenly seemed magical. I began to think that this was an awful lot of fun. I felt pretty and was in a kind of headspace where I was loving the music and the pomp and the circumstance and thought it was all a great scene. The veiled prophet, the man to summon to his court of love and beauty. Meanwhile, Percy's operatives, Jane and Gina, were in the balcony, looking for ways to carry out Operation Unveil. The ceremony had just started, and on stage sat the target of their mission, the Veiled Prophet. Jane Sauer watched as each debutante approached his throne for their big moment. They don't just bow to him, but they deeply bow to him. I mean, they kind of lay down on the floor in front of him. It's bizarre. The scene unfolding in front of Jane only confirmed to her why she was there to disrupt it. And that's when Gina saw a way to get close to the prophet. It was definitely Gina who spotted this cable. And um, to the best of my memory, it was a cable that went to a television camera. She tugged on this cable and said, I think it'll hold either one of us. The cable stretched from the balcony to a television camera positioned on stage, 
right in front of the veiled prophet. She was a thousand times more athletic than I was. So there was no doubt she was going to be the one that would slide down the cable. Like, slide down, slide down? She developed this idea that she would slide down the cable, and it looked like she would land almost in front of the Vale Prophet. Jane had come prepared with a purse full of leaflets from action. They criticized the Veiled Prophet's racist, sexist, and elitist history. Plus, Percy taught his operatives to make the most of what little they had on hand. So, hello, diversion. Jane said, go over there and throw the leaflets and I'll slide down over here. As Gina gripped the cable, preparing to make her daring descent, Jane made it rain educational literature. The minute I started throwing over leaflets, I was surrounded by security. They were hauling me off because they didn't know there was going to be much bigger action. With security distracted, Gina took a deep breath in and jumped. In the sea of debutantes below, Lucy Ferris was still pretty stoned, but she remembers it well. I saw something swinging down from the third balcony. You know, kind of like Mary Poppins descending on her umbrella. It's You're like, oh, look at that. Someone's flying. It was not, in fact, a charming British nanny hurtling towards the stage. It was Gina. And according to Jane... Her big leap was slightly lacking in movie magic. What happened was that the cable, it was a rubber cable, and the sliding and holding onto it with her hands burnt her hands, the friction of it. And so she dropped it ahead of reaching the floor and fell, but not where the TV camera was. She fell behind where the veil prophet was. Gina crashed to the ground hard on her left side. It looked like she had maybe broken a couple of ribs. Lucy and the rest of the Veiled Prophet crowd watched aghast. There was kind of an audible gasp. And then the St. Louis Orchestra started to strike up the tune again. Lucy watched as Gina collected herself and limped up behind the throne. Acting fast, Gina knocked the Veiled Prophet's round silver helmet to the ground. His lace veil floated to the floor in slow motion. I remember that I went, aww, because my whole little, maybe at that point, 45-minute fantasy had been punctured. And there was this fat, bald man sitting on the throne. That fat, bald man was Tom K. Smith, a middle-aged Monsanto executive and that year's veiled prophet. Without his veil and the power of anonymity, the mysterious prophet was just an ordinary man in a costume. In perfect wasp style, there was absolute silence for about a minute and a half while Tom K. Smith found his veil and his hat and put them back on. As the prophet reveiled amidst the commotion, Gina was dragged off stage. She was quickly removed from the ball and taken to the hospital to have her broken ribs looked at. Jane was kicked out too, 
tossed out the back door by security. And out front, in their usual picket line, Percy Green and Action waited on word from the ball. I was out uh, conducting the picket line, but I had all of the faith in the world of... uh, Eventually, Percy got the news that Jane and Gina had pulled off Operation Unveil. Would I call it a successful thing? Of course. It did everything that we pointed out. Back inside the ball, everyone tried to just proceed as usual. But even for someone like Lucy, who was still feeling the effects of the brownies, the unveiling of the Veiled Prophet was a dramatic disruption. For her, the night never got back its earlier luster. Once the Prophet was unveiled, the mystery left. The whole event from that point on felt to me as though we were zombies. Performing a ritual that was already dead, that had just been killed. Ultimately, the Veiled Prophet organization declined to press charges against either of the women. Jane says it's because the secretive group would have had to disclose a lot more information about itself than it wanted to. Action hoped that Gina and Jane's stunt would be covered in the press creating a PR nightmare. But the city's two major newspapers never even published the name of the Monsanto executive behind the veil that night. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch wrote that, quote, although the prophet was unveiled, he was not revealed. To Percy, it was just more proof that the many legacy institutions of St. Louis would always have each other's backs. So we pointed out that The newspapers were racist also. Percy considers that night a win for a lot of reasons. After that year, the ball was moved from Keel Auditorium, a public theater funded by tax dollars, to a private hotel. And Percy says the local papers eventually admitted they had lied about what happened at the ball in 1972. We reached out to the Veiled Prophet organization for their comments on this story but they didn't return our messages. When you compare the St. Louis of today to the St. Louis of over a century ago, some things have changed. The city just isn't the same economic powerhouse it once was. Over the past 50 years, a lot of the big companies headquartered there have been acquired by even bigger companies or moved out of the city entirely. But it also hasn't changed that much. It remains highly class-conscious. In 2019, one UC Berkeley study ranked it the 10th most segregated city in the U.S. And racial tensions in the city have made national headlines, most notably after police killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, a suburb of St. Louis. For now, the city still has its ruling class, and they still have their veiled profit ball. Despite more than a century of protest and criticism, the Veiled Prophet organization lives on. It has shifted slightly, allowing Black men entrance in 1979, but still, they throw their party every December in pretty much the same way they always have, with young women bowing to a grown man hidden behind a veil. 
After Ellie Kemper was exposed as a veiled prophet debutante, she apologized for her participation. She said she wasn't aware at the time of the ball's racist, sexist, and elitist past. And that, quote, I was old enough to have educated myself before getting involved. It feels like, after more than 100 years, everybody should know better. The Veiled Prophet Ball, this white tie evening, with debutantes and dinner and dancing, is a pretty good disguise for the ugly truth about its origins. But the history remains, close by, just underneath the veil. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Laura Newcomb. Next week, we're revisiting a classic episode asking the tough questions about America's favorite treat. Like, what is wrong with us that we need <laughs> a hot, like a sex icon Eminem? The rest of our team are producers Olivia Briley and Ramoy Phillip. Our associate producer is Nick Del Rose. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Katie Feather and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Fact-checking by Ian Michael. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, Bobby Lord, Marcus Bagala, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Chris Martinez at the Missouri Historical Society and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Ariel Joseph. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I can do what I can to bring this whole patriarchy down. But meanwhile, my dad really wants me to do this. <laughs>